Hello, and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. We have been bombarded over the past couple of months with stupefying figures in terms of the money that's going to be spent to get us through the corona crisis. Rishi Sunak's £30 billion splurge in the March budget seemed like an awful lot of money at the time, but it's dwarfed by the subsequent £330 billion in business loans that he announced a week later. It's estimated that the emergency programme will take the country's national debt to over 120%, levels last seen after the Second World War, which raises the question, who's going to pay for all this, and how, and when? British tax policy was already contentious before the crisis. Many believed that we let corporations and the well-off get away without paying their share. Others that cutting taxes further was the right way forward. Now, what we do with tax is a matter of historic importance. We may even be at a turning point. With me to talk about it is Giles Wilkes, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government and mainstay of their excellent Inside Briefing podcast. Hello, Giles. How are you? I'm very well, Andrew. I'm enjoying the weather. I'm looking at it through a window, but it's nice to look at. How are you? It's like, I'm very well. It's like watching a particularly attractive screensaver, isn't it? Through, yes, uh, it is. You can do that for minutes before you get quite irritated. Yes. Absolutely. So the IFG have just published a report on the future of tax. Uh, you know, I would like to know, Many people don't understand what are the structural problems in our system as it stands, even before Corona. You know, could we? You know, was our tax system fit for purpose before this kind of wrecking ball came in? Well, can I give you the biggest structural problem? Um, the biggest structural problem is the taxpayer who hates doing it, and yeah. that's some. Um, you you described that there's two sides of this debate. Some people want higher taxes. Some people want lower taxes. The t- typical style of the Institute for Government is to be very even-handed and say some people have got a good point here, some people have got a good point there. I want to say one side of that argument is wrong. We've got a state that is going to become more expensive even before COVID hit us. It does as you get older and your need to sort of protect people and pay for their health care and so forth goes up. On the whole, state services get more expensive through time. We need higher taxes. And what we really need is grown-up politicians that can turn around to grizzling taxpayers and say, you know, you're going to have to pay a little bit more. And now might be a good time to have that conversation because they can understand just why you need a decently funded state. Yes, and the enthusiasm for the for the National Health Service in particular, but also having yes. brought out the, the, the massive and kind of neglected cost of social care. Uh, and we're seeing terrible stories of, of, uh, of deaths in social care uh, during the, the coronavirus outbreak. Yeah. Um, do you, what is, you know, is it possible, even taking it out of party politics, is it possible for a government to reach out and have that adult conversation with voters? Because for my entire adult life, the conversation has been framed in in terms of they want to take your money and waste it. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I mean, the last time you might say that this was really given to the public as a grown-up offer was 2002 when Gordon Brown raised national insurance by a small amount to pay for a big increase in the NHS. And then ever since then, and in particular, the party that I was um, serving as a special advisor in 2010 came in, big fiscal crisis, £167 billion deficit. And what was the promise to the electorate? We're going to take you out of tax. We're going to raise the income tax threshold because isn't it great when you don't have to pay as much tax? So people are not willing to accept the bargain that they used to. And the thing is, the British public wasn't always that kind of um, unwilling to face truths. I mean, in the 60s, for example, we would have a sterling crisis and then Chancellor like Roy Jenkins would stand up, raise lots of little taxes and explain if we didn't do this, the pound was going to crash and we're all going to be in trouble. And on the whole, it kind of worked. So, yeah, we do need to have a return to that kind of grown-up conversation that things need to be paid for. 
But then also there's your question about all the structural reasons that taxes are difficult, even though they're, despite the fact they're just, um, not just about them being unpopular, but there's also inefficiencies and distortions and all sorts of problems with putting on tax, which are, I suspect your first question was really aimed at. Yeah, I mean, can you give me an idea of what, you know, what those what what those issues are i mean are, are, are we attempting to tax the wrong things or is, is our vision well the, yeah, I mean, the what, classic how... one the, the classic one that led to the most famous napkin in history which is the the napkin on which arthur laffer drew a curve explaining to some republican politicians that if you cut taxes the tax take might go up because you encourage people to work harder and produce more for the economy and that raises tax that's a, that's now known as the laffer curve it's widely refuted for current policy making but that points at the biggest disadvantage of tax which is that it discourages activity particularly income taxes corporation taxes even some kind of property tax they all basically say if you work harder we're going to take more off you and that will lead to a less entrepreneurial hard-working economy in fact it's even worse at the lower end of the um of the income distribution where you also remove benefits as people work harder so Number one problem with taxation, it discourages people from doing things you might want them to do. Um, there's other other problems. That if you want to raise money, it can be unfair. You can be taxing things that people can't can't not do. And therefore, you know, for example, an old person trying to buy their energy, you, you're, you're taking money away from the poor. There's, the fact is there's like 10 of them. I mean, there are advantages to some kind of taxes. Like you can tax something that you don't want people to do, like, drive cars and so you put on a fuel duty and that discourages people from driving cars but mostly the worst thing about a tax policy is it takes away money and discourages activity so you're describing there a a, a kind of traditional landscape of uh, incentives and disincentives in an active economy we're about yeah. to enter an economy in a coma we are about to enter a period of inactivity the likes of which you and i have never seen are those incentives and disincentives still going to work? Or is it time to start thinking about tax in a completely different way? Because it's one thing saying you can tax, you know, you can reduce the tax burden to encourage further economic activity. But if economic activity is going to slump as badly as we think it's going to, and is, if people's imperatives are going to be much more of a subsistence level, do those, do those levers still work? It's a really good question. I mean, right now, Possibly for a unique period in history, we've got an economic situation where the, where the government is positively discouraging activity in a large section of the economy. And therefore, any inducements to go out and work that you normally put in the textbooks just don't work anymore. Now, the simple answer to your question is the government shouldn't be thinking about its tax take at all right now. What we've had is a crisis that has hit the whole economy by my rough estimate, we're currently expecting it to take away £350 billion worth of activity by the time we get back on trend, if things go as well as the Office for Budget Responsibility hopes, which is a big if. Now, of that £350 billion... That's, that's, uh, that's the good results. That's the that's positive result. result. Yeah, exactly. Coronavirus came along and it only cost us £350 billion. Hooray, <laughs> we did well. And, and in, you know what? I don't want to give you the figure for the financial crisis because... The economy went down and never got back on its trend, so it might be a high multiple of that. So coronavirus still might look like the better of the two crises if we got back there, big if. But the point about that $350 billion, this is a crisis that has hit the whole society without any kind of fair discrimination between deserving and undeserving. It's something that we should all carry together 
And that means the government. If the government found some way of taking as much of that 350 billion as possible and saying that we're going to carry this and later when we're all back on our feet and able to operate normally, we all have a discussion as a society about how to raise it again when you are working out there. That's the way to do it. Which So the answer in the short run is don't even think about your tax take. In fact, if you think your tax take is impoverishing people who need that income to keep going, people who's just lost their jobs, just you want to slow it, slow it down, which is what um, some of the government's measures have done. They've sort of put off the payment of VAT, for example, and business rates. They said, we don't need your money right now. We know that you need it. So in a funny way, all the rules around taxation have ended for a little while, while they stop and try to shield us from that problem. So if the, if the rules are all over for now or in suspension, um, yeah. one would hope that thought is going into how they'll be reconstructed afterwards, the old Homer Simpson concept of the crisis unity. <laughs> can this, this crisis unity be used? When, I mean, obviously, there's not going to be a reset day. There's not going to be the last day of coronavirus and we all get to go to the pub immediately. But as, uh, as, as, as things get sl- slowly back to normal, You've discussed how we need to have an adult conversation about it, but Mm. are there certain aspects of taxation about which, realistically, there can be no debate? It's going to have to move more from A to to B. It's going to have to, for instance, I don't know, move less from uh, income and uh, earnings and more towards, say, wealth or property. Um, just a small um, side point to start with. Have you noticed anyone change their mind about anything because of coronavirus? Because I haven't yet. You know, you see all sorts of think tanks coming out and saying, you know, that thing we were talking about in December. Now more than ever, we need to be doing that. And it doesn't matter yeah. what that thing is. Cutting red tape. Yeah, we definitely need to cut more red tape. We definitely need to be become more equal or regionally balanced. Anyway, so one problem I have is that Politically, people do not see coronavirus as something that's going to change their mind about stuff. But it might just force us to recognise that we have to do things because we've got nowhere else to go. And I think the examples you've just given there are really good ones, that we have reached the end of the road in terms of certain ways of raising money. And some of the long-standing agendas like wealth inequality and so forth will have been shown up even more in the coronavirus crisis. And so... Perhaps the the moment for the politicians to turn around to people and say, look, we need something like a US property tax that helps to address some of those wealth inequalities, for example, or more radically a land tax. We need some of these things in order to address the deficit we've got from this, but to deal with the fundamental unfairness of it, because it will almost certainly end up showing that the poor, the less well-resourced have suffered far more from coronavirus too. And maybe, just maybe, having been faced with so many uncomfortable truths out of the mouths of politicians this last few months, we're going to get the same kind of honesty from a chancellor saying, I've got a 10% deficit, I've got no choice, but this is the right thing to do. The IFG is scrupulously uh, non-partisan and scrupulously uh, kind of in- independent. Um, but if you were a betting man, where do you think the uh, the emphasis on taxation is likely to move. We know where we think it ought to move, but you just said we've come to the end of the road on certain ways of raising money. Um, it, what are those ways that we've come to the end of the road of, and where do you think it's likely to pick us, pivot? Well, I think there's always a mixture of low tactics and sort of high principle that goes on in politics. The sort of high principle, I think there were thoughts out there about shifting towards taxing immovable property because that's kind of efficient. People can't do much 
it can't force you into perverse activity. Your your land is your land, and it's going to have to pay the tax. And that's for somebody efficiency minded, as I understand Rishi Sunak to be, might be attractive, but it's a long term process of reform. Likewise, you you probably don't want as high stamp duty. You want to shift towards things that don't penalise activity when you want activity going, and stamp duty penalises activity, but towards the ownership of assets. And in a kind of Nixon goes to China way, the Conservative Party is in a better position to turn around to its rich sort of land holding constituency and say, look, you need to do this because we've got to bring society together. In the short term tactical sense, if you're the person in charge of the Treasury spreadsheet who has to make it add up the next day, um, the day before budget, there's a lot of things we've been doing that we didn't have to do. I hinted at one earlier. Why do we keep raising the income tax threshold and keep saying to increasing numbers of people, you should not be paying tax. That isn't a message you can keep going with anymore. And traditionally in the past, governments used to raise money by just keeping that threshold fixed or lowering it a little bit. It's not what the Lib Dems were calling for for ages. But if we hadn't done that, we could have funded 10, 15 billion pounds more for the NHS. And if there was ever a time for people to recognise it, that would be now. Where it's harder is things like getting companies to pay more tax and you didn't see the air quotes i just put around companies because <laughs> companies aren't people uh, ultimately they i mean we had this debate i think you'll find in america they are people actually giles well, yes, yes. in america they are but anyway yeah. here yeah corporate persons who are allowed to sort of fund political campaigns and things aren't they yeah but strictly speaking if you you know the money ultimately comes from an individual now so when you tax company dividends say it comes from pension funds and pension funds are ready for pensioners and you just need to think those sorts of things through um but we noticed that the Conservative government said we're not going to keep lowering the corporation tax level. And it's hard to believe that it's impossible to be a thriving economy with corporate tax slightly above where we are right now. When we had the dot-com boom, it was like 25 30%. You can, a lot of people are going to question whether you really need such incredibly low rates to encourage people to go out and work and invest and so forth. And I'm not sure the historical record is so brilliant that you have to have such low taxes in order to encourage entrepreneurs. There are a few sort of truisms or, or kind of widely held opinions about, about the tax regime that, uh, you know, that, that they're just out there. They're in the ether. They may not be supported by fact, but there's but there are positions that are strongly held. And one of them is that government finds it hard to raise revenue from large companies because they're supranational and yeah. they practice tax efficiency they kind of internationalize their profits and uh, register a loss here all that kind of stuff it's a it's incredibly contentious politically you know it, it foregrounded in both the most recent election campaigns is that something that as you describe in a nixon goes to china type way this conservative government is going to have to tackle because it's it's one thing talking about starbucks registering uh, pitiful profits in the uk on huge revenue in normal economic times it's another thing entirely seeing large companies particularly amazon for instance which is making a lot of hay out of this current crisis registering similar sort of nominal profit in the uk are they going to be able to do anything about this uh, that's a really fascinating i tell you one of the hardest days of work i ever had was when i was writing lead editorials for the financial times they asked me to write about something called the oecd's base erosion and profit shifting project which is basically what all the politicians nationally point at when they are asked to go after Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, whatever it is. They say, no, we need to do this internationally. Otherwise, it is like sort of caging smoke or they're just going to shift around the place. So there is a project going on at the OECD level to deal with 
incredibly complicated things like transfer pricing and defining your tax base in different places. It takes a certain level of statesmanlike behaviour across the piece to do this because there's all sorts of opportunity to have beggar by neighbour style policies. And um, and so, but that, but ultimately, if you don't work internationally, a single country is going to really struggle to go beyond a certain point before getting angry phone calls from CEOs saying their shareholders are telling them to move to Dublin or Luxembourg. So, what's going to be interesting is to see from the UK point of view whether leaving the EU doesn't destroy our belief in working together with other people where we really, really have to. So, I mean, that's my glib answer on that one, which is that you do have to work with other people, with other countries, if you want to come after corporate tax. I'd make a small point about Starbucks. Um, I remember looking at that back in 2013. And the funny thing about Starbucks then is they weren't actually doing very well. They weren't paying corporate tax. But when I spoke to one of their insiders, the problem was they'd chosen to expand massively into a recession-hit country and weren't making very much profit. And um, now, of course, there were a lot of people say they would say that, wouldn't they? But everyone sees lots of startup <laughs> shops around and goes, well, you must be doing very well. Um, it's not always that straightforward. It's quite a cutthroat business coffee. And so I've always felt a little bit of sympathy for Starbucks when, when they're used as an example of people who pointlessly don't pay tax. It's quite possible not to make a profit in business, as quite a few of them are showing right now. Well, they're certainly not selling any coffee at the moment, aren't they? So uh, sympathy is probably uh, quite appropriate yeah. right now. And in fact, that's um, going to be a really big practical problem. In the next few years, the amount of losses that companies can carry forward will make the whole corporate tax debate really twisted and difficult. But also, you know, you're mentioning locations. An ignorant layman like me might say, well, there's probably going to be some kind of a commercial property crash coming out of the, out of this that uh you know yeah. there's going to be a lot of people carrying uh you know long leases and expensive rents on properties that either can't be used or being you know vastly underused Man. how does that relate to the, to the to the tax take i mean this is going to be really really difficult i mean you've just given me something else to worry about i was just there getting three hours solid sleep at night and you kind of stopped me. so but you know when you talked about how we had a really massive tax but uh debt burden 120 percent of gdp we haven't had that since the war now the way we got it down after the war and it was 220 or something percent in 1945 wasn't like endlessly raising taxes although as we know from the beatles song there were really high taxes in the 60s it was through having excessively high levels of cash growth in the economy and stopping people from being able to make as much return from it. So they kind of inflated it away to a large degree. And it wasn't great. And we all know that the problems we got with inflation, particularly when it went out of control, but it wasn't, they didn't run a kind of a massive budget surplus like they did in the 19th century with the likes of Gladstone in charge of the Treasury. They they kind of ran the economy too hot and kept interest rates too low and did funny sort of tricks like that. Now, one of the um, – it's too early to have these kind of debates, but – if they can't find a way of raising taxes to deal with debt burden, it's difficult to know how that won't happen in some way or other or be looked at because otherwise it spirals out of control. But it's not ne So when you talk about commercial property and so forth, the problem there is deflation, deflation in the value of property holdings. And they need something to make sure that you don't have widespread economy-wide deflation because, yes, that does absolutely slaughter the tax take. That's what destroyed our tax base in... Um, in 2008, um, nominal GDP going negative. And so we have to avoid that. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see if they reach for all sorts of other policies to deal with that. The IFG, as part of your report, have called for a tax commission, mm -hmm. uh, a kind of, you know, 
apolitical, non-party connected, uh, a programme of public education on how and where tax is spent to, to kind of depoliticise it. Sounds great. Do you think it's likely? Well, um, it's something governments always try to do when they need to put something where they hope it's going to go beyond the political realm. Um, so, for example, the Howard Commission about the third runway at Heathrow, which was naively yeah. set up because they say, oh, we're all arguing about this. Why don't we get a, you know, a, one of the great and the good to tell us what to do and then we'll all just march behind him, which obviously doesn't work. Um, in this case, it's there might be a better chance if you've got some political give on one side of the debate. You need one or the other of the parties to be grown up enough to say we're not going to just use this as a way of sniping at the other side. It's a good place to start. And if it's if it's um, reputable enough, you're going to end up with something that everyone can point at and say, look, this is authentic. It's um, the, the best in class piece of work on this. And therefore, it's the kind of gold standard we should all debate around. And it kind of shifts the debate along there. But no politician that ever feels that they can be told what to do by a setup. Um, new commission or, or SAR or something like this. There's never been one that's been powerful enough to be able to direct a, a politician into it. So it needs to change the atmosphere and the analysis around it, like the Merlees Commission did, run by the IFS. But in the end, you do suffer the risk of a politician trying to steal an advantage out of doing something different, as we saw over the third runway. Something I should probably have raised a little bit earlier, but it does relate to the idea of, a, of an independent commission. We have an ageing population and there is widespread revulsion at the idea of older people paying uh, higher taxes, specifically things like social care, as Theresa May found out, to her cost. Is taxing older, wealthier people going to be the third rail that someone, somewhere in the course of this parliament or early in the next one, is going to have to grab? That's such a good question because that is where the money is. Like like the bank robber yeah. said about robbing the banks, that's where the money is. So you do have to be going after that kind of level of people in terms of wealth and in some cases income. Um, the problem with the social care one was a classic example of not doing what the IFG's work did call for, which is really <laughs> preparing the pitch in that nobody knew before that series of terrible headlines came out Nobody knew that the current system was so awful. They didn't realise that you currently have this appallingly inequitous problem where you'll be looked after if you have cancer, but if you've got dementia, you're going to run through all your savings. So it looked like a shift to something awful because they didn't really know what they were. If they'd spent six months explaining the current system and building support for the idea, it would have worked better. The problem there was it, doing, it happening during the heat of an election campaign, which is a terrible way to do things and does point to the advantage of an idea like a commission that really rolls the ground first. So um, we are going to have to look at every part of society. For the last 30 years, ever since the sort of uh, the advent of new labour, actually 20 years, pensioners have done basically better than the median of the economy and better off people have done better in well no better off older people have done better than you might expect pension poverty has really gone down compared to where it was in the 80s and um at some point there needs to be someone who can turn around and say look we've now got to think about the young instead it's um so yes they've got to do this the trouble is they've got a sort of 80 85 percent voter turnout record the youth have got 50 it's going to be extremely difficult to make the politics add up for that but yeah that's where the money is it has to be done 
So we need to find people. We need to find a sexual society that's got loads of money but doesn't vote. Yes, that's what we should be yes. looking for somewhere else. Yes, there. which is why people always go for foreigners first. Yeah, <laughs> they can't vote. Yeah. Well, look, Charles. I mean, it's a big ask for us to kind of try to wrap up the entirety of the tax scenario um, uh, in one twenty odd minute podcast. But if uh, you know, if you were to kind of give me, in a nutshell, a, a kind of takeaway on a, on a, you know, just a couple of key things. The people that, that that ought to be more widely understood. That if you were involved in a in a kind of uh, a government information campaign, the message you wanted to get out to the public about tax would be what? It is going to have to go up. If you want decent public services, they have to be paid for, and now they must appreciate that more than ever. That's the overwhelming advice. There aren't great cuts to come out of this public sector. We can see that with our own eyes right now. Uh, so tax will have to rise. And I think tax needs to become more honest, which means possibly it becoming more localised. We have a very centralised tax system. We didn't talk about this much. But we ought to, in, in the United States, when they want to raise something for something locally, they tax something locally. Here they go begging to Whitehall because that's where the money is raised and dispersed. So people need to accept the idea that there's going to be higher taxes, but taxes they can understand and can appreciate what they're getting for in return. And then we might move to a slightly better place. Are we in a huge teachable moment of some sort? Teachable moment. While we're all sitting at home listening to excellent podcasts, we can all learn a little. <laughs> Giles, thank you very much. That was enormously illuminating and partly terrifying, but also hugely educational. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the Bunker Daily. Please do come on again. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then there's another Bunker Daily on Monday morning. And our full-length roundtable edition comes out every Wednesday, so don't forget to subscribe. If you've got time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated. And if you've got spare podcasting time, you could also sit inside Briefing, which often has Giles on it and is absolutely excellent. We'll be back soon. See you then. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.